Yo, what's up, everybody? It's Real Sankara Hours. Uh, today is February 28th, 2021, slash March 1st, 2021. Um, Not quite. For three more minutes, we're still on the same day. Yeah, well, yeah, we're getting close to it um, in end of February, slash Black History Month. Although, uh, Black History is 24-7 on this podcast, so uh, we don't limit it to a month. But yeah, this is uh, your favorite um, black leftist uh political podcast um real sankara hours uh follow us at sankara hours on twitter and also to support independent black media uh become a patron at patreon.com slash real sankara hours again patreon.com slash real sankara hours five dollars a month gets you um bonus episodes uh but if you pay anywhere from one to four dollars a month um that won't get you access to bonus episodes, but it does help us uh, stay afloat. And it's, you know, we uh, created that tier as a sign of appreciation for people who, uh, you know, want to chip in um, any amount that they can. So um, anyway, yeah, we have a bunch of stuff to talk about. Um, U.S. airstrike in Syria, some, uh, police killings, um, uh, particularly one in Antioch, California, the COVID relief bill and uh, um and then we'll we'll wrap it up and then uh so yeah that's pretty much what's on the agenda for today so uh to introduce our, introduce ourselves as usual i'm adam hudson follow me at adam hudson five on twitter and this is peter m gun follow me at m gun peter and yeah twitter the uh the lib takes on something that is not surprising but is still disturbing uh the announcement that uh the that the united states has bombed a target in syria in retaliation quote unquote for uh for, yeah yeah for, yeah it was oh go ahead oh good. for a, for an attack by iran iranian backed forces in iraq that uh, supposedly attacked a U.S. base or something because the U.S. is still occupying Iraq illegally and there is a resistance movement to get them out and that's why Iran is there. Yeah, so. and also keep in mind, like, we invaded and occupied Iraq illegally on, you know, this is back in 2003 and I think now that we're in 2021, I think, like, this we need a sort of history refresher on this so um you know there was 9-11 terrorist attacks um then president george w bush said that iraq had weapons of mass destruction and connections with al-qaeda those are not true um people at the time uh who weren't listened to were saying like you know these, these claims are not true but uh, essentially the bush administration lied uh to justify invading and occupying iraq which was illegal, an illegal war of aggression. So, um, yeah, the United States invaded, occupied Iraq. Uh, under Obama, a lot of troops were withdrawn, but there's still a U.S. military presence in Iraq, and that's as a result of the 2003 uh, invasion. So uh, this is pretty much like a U.S. military presence in Iraq that's almost 20 years old at this point. Yeah, uh, and so, yeah, it can vote now. It can't. Yeah, 
the occupation can now join the military. Yeah, so, uh, there, yeah, there are some Iranian-backed militia, and the, the, uh, the, the Iraq war, like, um, Iran has been involved in Iraq because of the U.S. invasion there, basically, and so, um, uh, that's the sort of big picture context for um the attacks on uh so apparently so it was um there was a rocket attack in northern iraq on february 15th that killed one uh civilian contractor and um uh a u.s wounded a u.s troop and other coalition forces so uh the u.s airstrike carried out by joe biden in syria was in retaliation for that but I wanted to to add that context with the Iraq War, and then also mention the 2001 authorization for use of military force, which gave the president essentially carte blanche to use military force against any pretty much like individual or entity connected with Al Qaeda. But under Obama, it got uh, expanded to like um, associated forces with Al Qaeda, so it is like you know a friend of Al Qaeda, and then also friends of friends of Al Qaeda. So we're this is this is the context in terms of where we're at with this yeah. uh, post nine eleven post nine eleven um, U- uh, U.S. endless war machine. And so Biden is um, this is and to be honest, I wasn't surprised that this would happen. I was just it was just a matter of when. But um, to me, it just seems like this whole post nine eleven uh war machine is on autopilot and biden is just uh carrying off from bush to obama to trump to now uh him so yeah and to be clear iran is not covered in the aumf like there is absolute i mean al-qaeda and iran are not friends in any sense of the word they are not (laughs) they're on the opposite sides of things and that's the thing that i guess is it is it is an escalation of sorts in the sense that yeah there is no like technically i guess they can you know use isis to provide the legal fig leaf for why the u.s is in syria yeah that's that's uh yeah this would be clear like when it comes to aumf that's part of the Technically, the ISIS isn't included in the AUMF, but they've stretched the the meaning of the, again because the the AUMF was essentially carte blanche for the U.S. to just bomb whoever the hell they wanted. Like it was open ended enough where they could t- stretch it enough to include um, ISIS. And by the way, ISIS formed during the Iraq War. Like that, the ISIS is a creation of the Iraq War. So all this stuff flows from the the fucking Iraq War in two thousand three. Like this whole the whole shit that we're involved in comes from that illegal U.S. war of aggression in Iraq conducted by the Bush the Bush administration. Um, so yeah, like at this point again, it's just like we're just it's just like whack a mole. It's like oh, okay, we're just gonna kill someone and find uh, shoot first, ask questions later, kind of thing. Yeah, and it's not and it's not like the U.S. hasn't been carrying out these kind of strikes against. Iranian-backed forces, which are also there, like, by the invitation of the sovereign government of Syria, whatever you think about Assad, like, that's still the internationally recognized government of Syria, and so Iran is there by invitation, the U.S. is not, 
there's no like like there there's no agreement it's just we just showed up there and like yeah i think it's it is a mistake to assume that uh whatever happened was like actually a retaliation it's more that they are needing to have to develop new talking points and new uh justifications for why they can go after Iranian targets because it isn't covered under the AUMF as far as I understand. And now it is like, it's like we're taking cues from Israel in the sense of like, oh, no, oh, we'll just bomb, you know, the bad guys every now and then for, for the headlines to, yeah, get the heat off of, you know, maybe the fucking stimulus checks. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, because the U.S. has the um, infrastructure to do that. Because, I mean, speaking of Israel, Israel has long done, quote-unquote, um, targeted killings for a long time. And even the United States before 9-11 was kind of critical of Israel, like behind closed doors about their targeted killing. But after 9-11, um, the U.S. embraced the policy of, you know, targeted killing. So, yeah, like. I, I think like this the this post nine eleven war machine we have is at this point just uh, on autopilot, and um, yeah, this seems to be like a um, at least with uh, um, you know Iran, it, it sounds like Biden is um, trying to send some sort of a subtle message uh, with Iran in the region, but then it's like other stuff I've heard um, just in terms of. Um, like Biden's foreign policy in the Middle East doesn't seem to be because there's so much shit going on because like that's you know and I think like this this foreign policy is something you know we're definitely going to come back to because you know right now it's like February going into March and Biden you know as he got inaugurated it seems like you know the first order of business is to address the the pandemic the vaccine rollout and the stimulus checks so you know there there's there's that that's still on the table that is is incredibly urgent but you know it is interesting that like there's all that going on we haven't gotten stimulus checks yet um in the congress and biden are still dilly-dallying with that but the u.s still has time and money to launch airstrikes which again yeah. to me it just seems like this war machine is just on autopilot at this point. It's just like, okay, we have to deal with the pandemic, but psh, oh wait, we have to bomb someone for some reason. Uh, here we go. Boop. Psh, okay, now it's yeah. time to waste. Uh, we're gonna waste more time with the, you know, vaccine rollout and uh, and uh, not give anybody anybody stimulus checks because uh, we believe in austerity. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, yeah, and I just I did find it funny that um, sort of the shit libs, the takes on it initially were like, "Oh man, isn't it great to have like a president who can bomb without tweeting? I like that." And then everyone was like, "What the fuck?" And so then some of them had to retract and pretend to feel sad about it. But you know, the MSNBC crowd like they love this shit. Honestly, they love seeing the war machine in action like that part of the democratic party or base i guess even at this point so i mean that's always been true like uh but it will be interesting because 
yeah, there isn't like an official Biden foreign policy doctrine. And so, you know, these kind of moves are are, yeah, just function of autopilot. But eventually he's going to have to come up with an actual yeah, uh, policy towards the Middle East because the U.S. always keeps saying, oh, no, we're going to we're pulling out like any any day. But they also can't actually trust Saudi Arabia and Israel to carry out all of their uh, all of their whims. So that that will be an ongoing thing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of uh, speaking of shooting first and asking questions later. So there are two uh, cases of uh, poli- uh, police uh, killings, um, one one of which happened uh, in my neck of the woods, uh, Antioch, California, which is, you know, the city to the east of me. Um, I'm, I'm sure, like, if you've been paying attention, this this case is, uh, this story has reached, like, international, national and international news. So, um, <clears throat> on December 23rd of last year, 2020, um, a 30-year-old man, Angelo Quinto, a Filipino man, was uh, killed by police. So um, his family, he was experiencing a mental health crisis. He was suffering from paranoia, anxiety, and depression. So his sister, Isabella, called police. Um, again, this is December 23rd. Uh, at, called them to, to their family home in Antioch because, again, he was going through a mental health episode of uh, paranoia, anxiety, and depression. And uh, when the police uh uh you know came to the house um they uh one of the officers uh grabbed him knelt on his neck for five minutes and um after a while like he he was lying limp with uh blood on his face and then he he died uh i believe he he, di- he died after that he was uh he was unconscious taken to a local hospital then that's where he was pronounced dead three days later so um, I think this case has been, um, it got attention because the manner of death was very similar to George Floyd, where the officer knelt on, officer, uh, Derek Chauvin of Minneapolis knelt on George Floyd's, George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes and, uh, killed him. And, and that was caught on camera. And so, and, and, you know, that, that went worldwide and sparked, you know, um, nationwide protests against racism and police terrorism so um this happened to yeah angelo angelo quinto filipino man um a a navy veteran so um there was uh a, a meeting in antioch city council so as someone who's born and raised in the bay area let me kind of give the, the the demographic layouts of uh pittsburgh and antioch so uh, Pittsburgh, California, not Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, California. Um, it's about like 25, 30 minutes outside of east of Oakland. Um, it's a former, uh, steel, it's former steel town. It still kind of is. So it's a very sort of working class blue collar town. Um, and the racial demographics. So it's like nearly 19% non-Hispanic white. Um, 16 to 17 percent black or African American, uh, 15.3 percent Asian, um, Latino are 20 20.1 percent, and then white Hispanic are 16.2 percent. So 
Pittsburgh is a majority, like, non-white city. Um, Antioch is similar right now, but it wasn't always the case. Uh, white, non-Hispanic whites are 29% of, of Antioch's population. White Hispanics are 14.1%. Um, black Af- or African American are 19.8%, so nearly 20% are black in Antioch. Latinos are... 14.4%, Asians are 10.6%, um, and this the data I'm looking at, it, it breaks it all down. Uh, so, Antioch um, suffered a lot during the uh, the 2008 um, financial crash, like the foreclosure crisis, because a lot of those um, a lot of people were buying homes with subprime mortgages and, and houses in Antioch, and then when the bubble burst, Antioch suffered immensely. So a lot of Black and Latino people bought these bought these homes with subprime mortgage loans in Antioch, and then they they got screwed after the financial crash. So, um, so that's like that's partially how Antioch's racial demographics have changed because it wasn't always like this. Antioch's it's usually been like a kind of white and somewhat rural, especially go further east because Pittsburgh is still technically the East Bay, but when you go further east, you're going to like Central California. So. Antioch is sort of like getting close to that in terms of geography. So I mention that because Antioch right now, in terms of their city council, um, has a majority black city council at this point, which is rare for Antioch. It wasn't it wasn't quite the case previously. But so their mayor Lamar Thorpe, I believe he's the first black mayor of Antioch, and then there's uh, Monica Wilson, who's a black woman. And then Tamisha Walker, also a black woman. Then there's uh, Michael Barbanica, and then Lori uh, Agorchak. Agorchak? I'm probably butchering the name. So, uh, and Lamar Thorpe, he was uh, he 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 um was like a Bernie supporter. So he's always had like he he's not like super radical, um, but he has progressive politics. Uh, so he ran on a campaign of. Uh, one of his part of his platform was police reform and before this case made headlines he was already he already had um proposals for reforming the police and as you as you'll know like if you look back at a couple of our episodes back like months back like there was a a protest a hunger strike against um officer michael malone who was involved in killing a homeless man in san francisco a couple years ago so there have been a lot of ever since black lives matter there have been some protests against police terror police violence in Antioch and so when this you know made headlines uh you know that just amped up the heat even more so there is a meeting in Antioch um about addressing uh police reforms so actually um after the Quinto case uh um got attention um Antioch City Council there was a special session this is last friday so this is like february 26 and it was just like a out like i don't know, i think a seven hours seven hour long meeting um it was a special session and um it was a series of measures that were brought forward by mayor thorpe and he called them a blueprint for reform and so among those measures uh are um, a mental health crisis response team officer training demilitarization of the police body cams and dash cams independent review of complaints 
hiring and screening and public notification for major incidents. So um, th this is like, again, an hours long meeting, but for the most part, the city council divide, decided to move forward with uh, a bunch of those reforms. So there's still like, um, uh, some reading, I'm reading through this. I know the, uh, uh, yeah, the council voted unanimously, unanimously, unanimously to support like new body cam and uh, dash cam system for the police department. Um, and then like, there's still like, uh, they have to like kind of move the process forward in terms of implementing this stuff and uh, reviewing the stuff. But so basically the, like Antioch city council made some steps to, uh, basically pass and implement um, these police reform measures. I'll, I'll include like the local news site links um, uh, to explain like how how it went down. So anyway, I want I want <clears throat> I wanted to mention it because uh, obviously this is they, they weren't talking about defunding the police or any of that, but they did move forward with some uh, reforms. And I'm, I'm actually pretty what I thought was interesting is that um the the mental health crisis response team and it was modeled after um basically uh cahoots crisis assistant helping out on the streets which originated in um eugene oregon in 1989 and the found um uh i guess the founder um described it as the, its mission was to improve the city's response to mental illness substance abuse and homelessness and also, like, um, Antioch police also tased a man to death not too long ago, a couple of days ago, by the way. Um, I think he was also having, like, some weird, like, mental health episode. So um, I think, like, those in incidents provide definitely provided, like, a, a push within the city to move forward with these reforms, particularly the uh, mental health crisis uh, response team. Um, so I... Anyway, I wanted to mention that because I found it really interesting and it's, it's, it's something to, to pay attention to. But um... yeah, I bet, and I want to say that um, I think something that kind of got looked over when the movement sort of came back last summer is that it is not, it isn't like there's no national um, legislation that really can solve any of this, and that. Part of, like, the way even the demands around defunding the police, like, the reason that was kind of picked as a slogan was because you need something you need something that, like, local activists and organizers can pressure the city council to do. And stuff like, yeah, having a mental health response team is, I mean, that's just, it's, 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 basically malpractice to not have that at this point right because like sending the police in is just it never ends well um and there's just no need to actually put people in jail for that stuff um but yeah that that is that is like I, like it's hard it's hard because it feels like nothing ever changes and it's not like the police have really stopped killing or killed less. But there are, like, the only way that this change is going to happen is uh, from local pressure. So that's mm -hmm. a good example of how, you know, some small gains can be achieved. Yeah, and I want to mention, um, I'm part of a coalition called um, 
Pittsburgh educators for racial justice. So, um, for those of you who have been following, I've been talking about this ethnic studies campaign I'm involved in, and uh, the coalition I'm a member of, um, I've, I've been working with, uh, is called, yeah, uh, the acronym is PURGE, but it stands for Pittsburgh Educators for Racial Justice. Um, I actually want to read the uh, statement that we put out, um, and to kind of actually to kind of make some um, kind of connections with uh, with with eth ethnic studies and why like uh, this kind of like local activism is important. So this is a letter uh, to Mayor Thorpe and Antioch City Council. Pittsburgh Educators for Racial Justice is a grassroots coalition of volunteer parents. Volunteer teachers, parents, community members, and Pittsburgh High School alumni. So for myself, I'm an alumni of Pittsburgh High School, but I'm also a community member and a, a educator. So uh, we stand in firm, firm solidarity with the 138 Filipino organizations and the 22,000 names signed to the circulating position. As close neighbors, we are horrified again at the extrajudicial killing of black, brown, and indigenous community that is allowed to persist not only across the country, but in our backyards. Our fight for ethnic studies in Pittsburgh Unified Schools is underscored by the tragic murder of Angelo because a culture of ethnic studies provides a network of community support and affirmation for young people with a variety of needs. The history of policing is grim, and it is well documented that where policing fails to unlift, ethnic studies and community uh, succeed. We demand justice for the murder of Angelo Quinto and for all those murdered at the hands of Antioch police. We demand that Mayor uh, Jim Thorpe require uh, Lamar Thorpe require Antioch police to outlaw the knee-to-neck restraint and uh, 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 carotid hold. We demand that the officers responsible officers responsible are held accountable for the use of excessive force we demand that Antioch police and police in all of contra costa county have dashboard cameras and be required to wear body cameras we demand that apd invest in mental health response teams and that the police budget is cut by an amount commensurate with the work they will no longer perform to begin any healing uh the city of Antioch and apd must fulfill all demands presented by angela's family in the words of Malcolm X, if you stick a if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it out all the all pull pull it all the way out, that's not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made, and they haven't even pulled the knife out, much less heal the wound. They won't even admit the knife is there. We purge demand you heal this wound. So I thought that was a really good statement, and um, and and I I think like um. To, to 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 kind of tie in like um why ethnic studies uh relates to this is because um you know i think i said this on a previous episode that like um uh school systems are uh the eurocentrism they promote um is a form of inst institutional racism and that's part of the same system of racism that the police are part of and um Along with Eurocentric age education in majority non-white schools, there's also uh, often uh, policing and criminalization, especially of, of uh, black students. So, um, the they're part of the same culture. Like the culture that education promotes uh, is similar to the culture that like 
uh, officers are um, embedded in and why it makes, like, it's basically the reason like, why police um, feel emboldened to uh, use excessive force and kill unarmed people, especially unarmed black and non-white people and poor people with impunity because um, it's not by accident, right? These are yeah. not flukes. These are part of the system. And um, the kind of Eurocentric culture that American education promotes uh, feeds into um, the overall culture that justifies these kinds of police killings with impunity. Um, yeah, want, it's, yeah go the, ahead, it's the sovereignty of whiteness is what it is. Exactly. That, that That's what the police are charged with uh, maintaining. That's the social order. Exactly. Is that, is that white people have to have sovereignty over not just the land, obviously, but all the political and economic structures. And, you know, also you know epistemologically uh because that's part of uh establishing your legitimacy is creating a historical narrative that justifies uh why you are there and even with even you know and yeah it has advanced to the point where you can have individual uh colonized members in the structure but the structure still carries out like whiteness as sovereignty uh yeah like and everyone else is just you know on the receiving end of that and that's that's really what like the mentality of a police department is about yeah yeah like uh to kind of um apply gramsci's notion of uh cultural hegemony um in a settler colonial society like the united states um, its cultural hegemony is whiteness and white superiority and the education system uh, is like the educational institutions uh, reinforce that cultural hegemony of white superiority and yeah like when you have that as like the dominant um, cultural ethos of a society then the police are just like the violent enforcement mechanism of that. Like the police are the violent enforce enforcement mechanism of white power and capitalism. Um, and then places like education and media, they just reinforce the myth of, of white superiority and the two go together. That's why like, I like using Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's um, definition of racism and how it manifests in um, uh, law, politics, war, economics, education. Like, white supremacy manifests itself in multiple areas of human life. And through economics, it's manifested through capitalism. Uh, as, as Kwame Trey pointed out, like, capitalism is how the white man amass amasses his, his uh, economic power, right? Um, the police are the violent enforcement mechanism of a white power structure. And education and media reinforce the cultural hegemony of whiteness and white superiority. And ethnic studies is a way to combat that in, in education system. That, that's really like 
the main impetus of ethnic studies. It's not just like, you know, a diversity checkmark or like liberal multiculturalism. Like ethnic studies is to challenge that that myth um, of uh, white superiority in education because, you know, by looking at like the, the complexity of, um, you know, the world itself, like the reality of the world like does not match with, with white superior, superiority, but... Um, you know, it's made real through education uh, and media. So I wanted to, like, yeah, kind of just explain, like, how those are, are tied together. Uh, and I think, you know, the statement we put out, you know, uh, obviously I support it because I'm part of the coalition. But um, to kind of see, like, you know, why these um, this kind of, like, local activism is important and how it can lead to, you know, reforms like what happened in Antioch and why this is, you know, still part of a, of a uh, larger struggle. Yeah, because, uh, like, in the context of the United States, white people are the only people with any historical subjectivities, as it's understood, and that, uh, you know, would initially, in, I guess, the, you want to call it the primitive accumulation of capital days, that would be just, like, posses and, you know, lynch mobs and that stuff, as forces become more developed that has to get uh solidified and professionalized into police forces but challenging basic basically any form of or asserting any other form of historical subjectivity uh on this continent is going to uh inherently challenge the entire system yeah and actually lately um um a couple days before we recorded this, uh, I did a um, a jam ba- like a these days like there's no there's not a lot of like live live music so they, I did a virtual performance so I recorded myself playing with my my new djembe that I got it's made in Ghana um, and I, I did a performance and before my performance I kind of explained like you know this the kind of the, the cultural significance of djembe and african drumming and how it, it is it is tied to black history because um black history is not just slavery and if you start black history with just slavery then it's still reinforcing that eurocentric myth that like you know when you reduce like a people to like oh your history is just slavery and that's it it was like well no that's not true but what you're really saying to a group of people is that uh, you're nothing but a slave, and that's it. So yeah, I'll, and you don't act in the historical sense. Exactly right, right, right. And so what I was saying is that, like, look, like, j- like if you're looking at where the slave ships picked our ancestors from, Western and Central Africa, uh, djembe is part of that. It comes from West Africa, so that means like it is part of a, a Black history that precedes slavery. So there is a Black history that precedes slavery, and there still is, you know, despite like the, the thing that makes it difficult is that because of how violent slavery was, it, it broke off direct uh, ties and communications with uh, pre-slavery African civilizations. Uh, but, you know, what I always try to mention is that like if you look at music of the African diaspora, there's still continuity between musical traditions there and in and here, like especially blues, jazz, samba, uh, a lot of Latin music with the rhythms of uh, the blues scale, like on and on and on, right? So, um, uh, lately what I've been doing is, um, I've been doing some, if you follow me on Instagram at adam.hudson5, I've been doing some IG live videos where I kind of go in, I kind of go into 
like pan-african african history um because yeah like this kind of education i think is uh really important because you know when when we're challenging racism uh i like there is some psychological warfare that is part of this too like there is there are the fights at city councils to uh go up against um police violence and gentrification but then there's also like the psychological war when it comes to challenging the uh cultural hegemony of uh whiteness and white superiority and white ego yeah and i guess if you want to be dialectical about it you can say that uh the sort of the liberal multicultural consensus that emerged in the 60s uh you know in the context of this imperialist white supremacist system uh creates its own antithesis Mm, yeah and so therefore you need to challenge things on a deeper level to assert freedom and uh self-determination again because it you know if you like it is amazing just in the 90s you know even how there was just this whole it was just kind of assumed in as a matter of public conversation that like black people don't really have anything to complain about anymore. Oh yeah. I, I, yeah, I remember uh, definitely the two thousands. That was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really up until Ferguson. Yeah. uh, There, I mean, sort of with like the Tumblr and sort of wokeification under like early Obama, there were inroads, but it was still like, oh, well, that's just a thing those people are saying. And now I think there is a broader realization that, like, there are structural problems Mm -hmm. that the civil rights movement didn't even come close to fixing. Exactly. Uh, So I don't know if that's good because, like, the problems are still there and still hurting people, but it does seem that there is a broader understanding among the average uh, person that, there are, yeah, in actual structural barriers. Yeah. And, I mean, speaking of, you know, uh, there there was another police killing, um, I think this was a couple months ago. Kurt Reinald, he was an unarmed black man. Um, uh, Ari Melber did a, I, I thought Ari Melber did a good segment on this, so I put the video in the show notes. It was titled, Walking While Black, and uh, he was um, allegedly jaywalking, which... Is an infra- is an infraction, so that's below a misdemeanor, which would, means you would just pay a fine for that. But there was, uh, thanks to local pressure, they got like additional, um, uh, dash cam footage, video footage, uh, released publicly, and it shows in the dash cam footage there were two officers. One officer was like, "Hey, let's go get this guy. Like, let's go get him," and the other was like, "Uh, no, this is why." Like, he was kind of questioning, like, uh, that there was, you know no reason to really pursue the guy but then like you know they relent you know the other guy relented and listened to the guy who wanted to pursue him so they pursued him they escalated the situation and then they shot and killed him um so again this was over jaywalking this wasn't like you know yeah, it, it wasn't oh, for a violent crime. Again, jaywalking isn't an, is an infraction. So, uh, an infraction is below a misdemeanor. So there's infraction, 
misdemeanor. Yeah, yeah, it's not even jaywalking's not even a crime. It's a civil. It's a. It's on the level of a parking ticket. Exactly. And, right. And that's also a good uh, demonstration as to why there are no good cops because even if there's one who's like, ah, I don't think we need to do that, you know, the impulse towards murder seems to always win out. Right. Right. And, and I and something I just always wonder is do you think I have a hard time believing that like those cops wake up that day and don't feel like he, they're going to kill someone that day. You know, I don't know. It's just something that's been on my mind as these things come up because it's just like at this point there you know, we're having the conversations about it, but like the actual killings aren't decreasing as far as I understand. And right. so it's almost like they it's it's like it's like the culture war like owning the lib kind of uh reactionary like uh <laughs> mentality where it's like oh well now we're going to do it even more because it makes you people so mad and that makes me happy uh but applied to state sanctioned murder so that's a good question i i that's something i definitely want to think about more I'm not, I don't really have a definite answer. Yeah, yeah and it's not a head. specific answer, but because uh, you can't ever know what goes in the mind, goes on the minds of these cretins. But I just like part of the cop mentality is knowing that you can kill people and get away with it. And I have to right. imagine at some point you're like, man, where's mine? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, and I think like, you know, even to relate it to the U.S. airstrike in Syria, like when I was saying that this war machine's on autopilot, it, it, in in some ways, I think like some of these police killings can be almost described in a similar fashion. Is is just like autopilot. It's just, you know, like in terms of the institution of American policing, it, it's just like it just seems very deeply ingrained in the culture and the institution that, you know, even um, uh even if you try to reform it doesn't get to that fundamental yeah. problem and that that fundamental rot in the institution and also what the institution reinforces in a society like this you know so yeah i mean it's almost ritual at this point right there's, there's like a ritual display of violence which is how uh whiteness asserts its sovereignty it ha- it always has through not just controlling the you know means of production and like the political economic system, but also it has to have these ritual displays of violence that prove uh, that it's you know untouchable. And that's and I think that the debate around police reform or you know police murder with impunity, like it at some point we're going to have to actually get to that as to you know, like what sovereignty in the United States is and where it finds its basis. Cause this goes back to literally the doctrine of discovery, which is like from the 1500s from the, like the Vatican that basically said, you know, Europeans have the right to this continent uh, because uh, the, you know, the indigenous people weren't doing, weren't doing what the Europeans wanted thought they should be doing with the land and so and that's like that is literally the basis for a lot of precedent legal precedent like in the united states and that is that is like the inherited 
uh, you know, structure. I mean, I remember way back in 2015 when Missouri Governor Jay Nixon, when he was talking about why he was sending the National Guard to Ferguson, he mentioned that, you know, part of the problem was that these protests and uh, attacks against the police were an attack against the Anglo-American legal system. I remember that phrase sticking out in my mind because Anglo-American civilization is the thing that the Klan exists to defend. Like, they they named it as such, like, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon... The Anglo-Saxon Protestant tradition is still sort of the basis of, like, the entire American legal framework, and everything is just kind of navigating that framework through, you know, the realities of life on this continent uh, in the 21st century or whatever. But at the end of the day, that's where it all flows from. And so, I mean, not to get too, uh, too, I don't know, uh, out there, but at some point, I think, and I think, you know, I think at some point we're going to have to have a reckoning in this century. Um, the actual structure from the Constitution on through is going to have to be seriously reexamined, if not uh, thrown out outright. Yeah. yeah, and I think even um, I've I've this is you know getting even deeper into it, but this does uh, um, kind of tie into even the ethnic studies thing I was talking about. Um, I, I made a, I made an IG live video about the African roots of black music throughout the diaspora. And cause I often like people often get confused when I talk about African roots of, of, of black music, because again, like when people think of black music there, I think subconscious starting point is slavery and beyond rather than looking at like music and culture as something that like it, there's continuity to it, but there's still like evolution over time and, in, in space and in location so like um like black music in latin america like bomba in puerto rico or samba in brazil are different but there's still a root in continuity that they're continuing off of that goes back to africa before um slavery uh and so like pe people often get like you know even some of my friends like when i say like oh latin music is really black because of that they're like wait what like what are you talking about and it's like i have to explain you know the history of it but the reason why i bring it up is because i think like what you're talking about with the the doctrine of discovery and and, and looking at like the white white power and white supremacy like you know on a deeper level from bottom bottom on up i think even when we talk about um uh like race in the united states like we have to look at it, I would say, across the Americas, like from yeah. South America to Central America to the Caribbean and how it even influences discourses on race here. Because like the Latinx identity is not a racial identity because there's different races of people in Latin America. But, you know, like most of the enslaved Africans went to present day Latin America and the Caribbean. And there still is anti-black racism, not just on like an interpersonal level, but an also an institutional level. But 
um, the way white supremacy manifested in Latin America was different than the United States. But there still is, again, fundamentally, that structure of white superiority and anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity that, that goes back centuries. So, like, I think even when we're talking about white supremacy, um, obviously we're here in the United States, so, there, you know, we have, like, a specific focus, but... Uh, like this is this is this is global. Like this is across borders and languages, uh, because again, a transatlantic slave trade was border was borderless in interna- international in scope, and so the the ramifications of what we're talking about are global. I mean, even like look, like look at just the police shootings of black people in Brazil, like is it's almost like the same yeah. rate as the United States. So again, like it's coming from the same racist root yeah, as well. Well, yeah, and and. The United States, uh, and that's part of the reason why they need ghettos, is to have little laboratories for counterinsurgency and terrorism and impun and you know violent assertions of sovereignty, which then uh, can be workshopped and then exported to all our clientele, so that we can do security training or they can pay the United States a lot of money to do quote unquote security training, and that's how. Uh, you know, those countries can never really assert their own sovereignty outside of a global military industrial complex. And also, you know, the system of capital accumulation. I mean, that's like race. I, you know, the, the old question of like, is race superstructural? It, it, it's, there's a point where it almost doesn't matter. It almost becomes beside the point because it's, just so a deeply it's so deeply a part of the system itself that there's it's like it's a superstructure that also has a basement or something i don't know <laughs> but it's like like you can't yeah you can't like it is part of capitalism and even like you know racial capitalism i always find to be an odd term because it's just just completely ingrained into class struggle and you know class conflict uh and that's why i feel like even like class reductionism is like like people who try and act like that or even the real weird people who assert claim that as an identity because you know they really hate identity politics and so they're like proud class reductionists it's it they're not yeah you're it's just like you're not even understanding class because yeah there's always been a racialized element to proletarianization exactly Uh, Mm -hmm. and that's you know it's the inherent conflict is that you can't like subject a a nation you know if you have workers and bosses and they're all like part of the same nation and like but there's just such rampant exploitation like that's going to destroy the society at some point inevitably and so there always has to be some sort of you know grouping and the degree some sort some like designated outsider group i mean you know even back in england right when the first like they needed irish labor to to you know not just man man the factories but also to provide like a you know basically set of non-people because yeah. you can't really 
have an actual justification for why you're allowed to do that to these people. Mm-hmm. And so there's no there's no way really that you can separate, you know, racialization and racism from capitalism. Yeah. Just so everyone's clear about that. Um a really good uh book I would recommend people reading is uh, Class Struggle in Africa by Kwame Nkrumah. Because what, what Peter's talking about, like Kwame Nkrumah discusses that, but in the context of the African continent. And um, like one thing he, he threads very well is how um, colonialism in Africa is deeply, was deeply entwined, is deeply entwined with capitalism. So like there's racism, colonialism, and capitalism all like you know uh all together that's why again like i uh what kwame Ture said was just brilliant that like the white man amass amasses his wealth and power through capitalism and it you have to challenge capitalism to challenge to challenge that and um how i when i when i like when i say when i talk about racism and white power i'm i'm using again the the francis crest welsing definition and how like racism inherently has an economic basis to it and that economic basis is capitalism and so and capitalism itself benefits from having a racialized under underclass or a permanent underclass of uh non-people so yeah i'm i'm like even the term class reductionist um i mean i get it but sometimes i'm at this point where it's like uh obsessing over arguing with class reductionists to me because kind of uh I know it's like a thing on Twitter and people, you know, people on the left love to have these arguments, but then it's also like, you know, at some point, if you, if you truly understand capitalism and class, uh, then you're going to have to understand racism and white power and colonization, because if you can't understand capitalism without understanding those other, those other elements as well, like you just, you just, you just can't. Uh, so, you know, um, we're we're getting close to the end uh yeah and uh actually let's yeah let's talk about the, the these, these fucking checks yeah uh, speaking speaking <laughs> of the white sovereign there's no better uh physical representation than joseph robinette biden <laughs> right because, because he you know like objectively sucks as a politician and like just the idea that you know he can do all these racist things but you know, materially, but then just assume that he's like everyone's favorite, uh, you know, white, white boy is just like, it is like the physical demonstration of white sovereignty in Joe Biden. He's, there isn't really a more, I think even more so than Trump, just because of the history of everything he's done. I think he's such a perfect representation of white sovereignty yeah and, and so and where's my fucking money yeah i want my goddamn because joe biden was like if you like me you're you're gonna i don't know if that's a joe biden impression but whatever listen uh, listen here mac we 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 want to uh we, we we're trying to help people you know and but but i don't have the power to to do it i i can uh you know blow up whoever i want but somehow uh joe manchin's got me by the balls so you know i i so i had to ask some random uh parliamentarian like 
What if we're gonna have a par? If we're gonna have a parliamentarian, can we have like a parliamentary system? At least have a few right. more parties. Right. Like, like... <laughs> so 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 yeah. The, so the the stimulus checks like, you know, really. I, I've been listening to um, the majority report with Sam Seed. I think Emma Vigeland made this point a couple times, and I I I agree with it that. I mean, I think really what what Biden is doing is just like preparing people for austerity because yeah. he doesn't want he doesn't want people to get used to having too many goodies because if you give like working class people a lot of goodies and they're gonna demand more shit because it's like hey I got one yeah. check can I have another and it's like, yeah wait, well, hold well on. once people start to realize wait isn't this our money right and, <laughs> and aren't aren't you supposed to work for us I, it's like a de Tocqueville quote speaking of you know anglo-saxon political traditions or and i don't even actually know if it's real because i'm not going to read the tocqueville but it's basically like uh you know libertarian nerds who actually hate democracy say like democracy is great until the people realize they can vote themselves the public treasury but it's like well the public treasury is ours and it should belong to us because like we're the ones paying into all this and you know there's certainly the argument about like modern monetary theory and the actual basis of money, but the broader idea that like, you know, this is our money. And so you should be giving it to us and not, you know, to your fucking uh, defense contractor friends and all that shit uh, is something that like people do realize. And I like, yeah, Biden is like the guy who like his dick can only get hard, not even from bombing Iran, I think only from cutting Social Security is the only way he can get hard at this point. So he's going to have to do it. Um, but it's, yeah, because he's, aust- because he is Mr. Austerity. And that's yep. why, and that's why he's in here. That's mm-hmm. why uh, Finance Capital lined up behind him and de- ditched Trump because they didn't have a need for him because they, because they need to discipline the populace. And so, you know, he's in a bit of a bind because, like, some level of relief is necessary to, like, keep our consumer-based economy going, but they need to transition out of that and into belt tightening, um, and they just didn't, don't have to, f- haven't figured out how to do it, and they didn't really expect to have the Senate, so, um, but yeah, they're just, they're just trying to pull out all the different mystification tactics because, they, they they just create a bunch of rules for themselves that you know that only only like the real like AP governors even still accept it as legitimate i think most people realize like it, it's all crap but yeah so 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 there's two things so um uh Joe Biden put a cap on who could receive um the the four so we're not even getting two thousand dollars stimulus checks we're getting fourteen hundred but they're like well you already got six hundred so six hundred plus fourteen hundred means you got two thousand but it's like wait a minute hold up we want when we said two thousand we mean yeah yeah it was they were very clear with like two thousand dollar checks you can find all the clips where they were very explicit about that promise but also yeah they're trying to means test it further such that mm-hmm. there are people who would get the six hundred and not the fourteen hundred if you make between like forty five and seventy five thousand dollars, I think. Yeah. So, um, uh, it's supposed to be capped at like I think if you make, um, uh, if you make above, I believe it's um one one fifty, I think. Um, 
So, and actually, there's an article in Newsweek where Biden, the headline is, Biden open to giving fewer people stimulus checks as weeks of delays loom. So, basically, right now, like, the package is a, it's a $1.9 trillion relief package for $1,400 stimulus checks. And um, right now, yeah, the threshold is, under the current bill, individuals earning under $75,000 a year. So seventy, if you earn less than seventy-five thousand dollars a year, would receive fourteen hundred. Now this is so to clarify this. Um, this is based on income from reported last year in twenty twenty. Now something really big happened in twenty twenty last year, which was a fucking pandemic. And so um, you know, if you filed like your twenty twenty, like your twenty twenty, yeah, income yeah, taxes, if they're going off of what you made in twenty nineteen. And right. you ate shit in 2020. They're still exactly. like, oh well, in 2019 you were fine, therefore you don't need it. Right. They're basing it on that. That like you're basically like you know if you made like let's say 120 thousand dollars before the pandemic, um, you know under this bill because they're looking at like what you made before the pandemic. But the thing is like there's a pandemic, uh, and a depression, which like a lot of people lost their fucking money. So it doesn't make sense to means test it because. Right now, currently, there are people who were fine before the pandemic, but they're not fine right now. But because, you know, the way they're means testing it is for is based on the income, you know, you reported on your, you know, on the taxes in the income, the taxes you filed in 2020, which is your 2019 income, which is, again, before the pandemic. So, you know, it doesn't even make sense on a practical level to means test it, but this is again, like, I think just just getting people ready just for austerity and not to you know accept uh, extra goodies. And when it comes to um, so that's that like that that was the um, that's the income part. Now there's a there's somebody called a parliamentarian. Her name is Elizabeth uh, McDonough, um, and uh, apparently like this is no one. Yeah, we don't have a parliament, but there's a parliamentarian, and it's you know some position about like uh, it's over like rules and but and budgets, and so there's supposed to be another um, another uh, provision to uh, raise the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and um, that was rejected because it violated some uh, like arcane. Um, yeah, this is real Hogwarts shit. The people right. so. The people who've only read Harry Potter, I think, love it. And I think they almost brought out the parliamentarian to, like, make a gesture to that. But the whole thing about the Senate is that they can do whatever they want. They write their own rules. Like, there's very little in the actual Constitution about, like, what the Senate, how the Senate is supposed to do whatever it does. They just, it's just, there was some political situation, like, 100 years ago, or 150 years ago, that prompted them to come up with a rule for this but then they can just make another rule because you know that's the whole point of a legislature is that like you can basically write whatever laws you want if you get a majority of people in the legislature to agree with it so the idea that like oh well we have to ask like the ombudsman if it's okay uh, right, because it's ridiculous. So, so there's a, the the Bird Rule established by former Senator Robert Bird of West Virginia, and it's basically a, prov- a provision which must affect um, federal spending or revenue to be included in a reconciliation measure. So basically, like if there's a provision that affects federal spending, 
it's supposed to go to reconciliation. So that's so they're asking like the parliamentarian, like, you know, if it's okay to include the the increasing of the minimum wage because it might uh, you know, increase the increase federal spending. But apparently, um uh, there's another headline like in New York Times: Top Senate official disqualifies minimum wage from stimulus plan. Because uh, I guess it went against one of the. the, the, the <laughs> it's like they're just making up rules yeah. that nobody gives a shit about, just so they can block minimum wage. But um, they have plenty of time to stretch um, a law to to the point of silly putty to justify bombing whoever the fuck they want around the world. So, yeah, this is where we're at, that, like, you know, it's, it, it's like, incredibly easy for the U.S. government to bomb whoever it wants with impunity, but when it comes to raising the minimum wage or getting stimulus checks for everybody who's in need of it, it's pretty much anybody, uh, like, the, you know, U.S. government, Congress, House, Senate, the President, they're like, yeah, well, it's just so complicated, okay? Like, you just have to, like... But again, it's this is I think this is why Emma Viglin was right. This is just getting people ready for austerity and not to expect too much from the government. Especially, like, when people actually fucking need it. Like, you know, people need these checks because other countries have like been giving people like thousand dollar checks every fucking month just yeah and just to keep the lights on right and the u.s government the united states we can't even get that so um yeah i want i want my fucking money we all want our our goddamn money and and why anyone who sees biden in public is i mean that's why they're not putting him in public it's like where's mom it's I, I hate Family Guy, but you know I hmm. the the scene like the extended sequence where Stewie's just beating up Brian. He's like, "Where's my money? Where's my?" Because <laughs> honestly, like yeah, fourteen hundred bucks would be very helpful right now. It uh, would be, and I yeah, it's it's just like like don't why are you playing with people when people are at their wits end? Like this is the wrong time to play with people and. I mean, it could, like, whatever happens, happens, and I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> as we enter the summer or whatever, but this is, this is a bad situation, and this is kind of, and I guess maybe to kind of tie some threads together and draw it to a close, mm-hmm. like, class conflict in the United States, there is always, I mean, obviously, for not for anyone who wasn't white, but there, you know, white people... I mean, through racist immigration policies, they needed a white settler majority to basically hold all the land they just stole because, you know, you want to keep it. And so but all those settlers, like when they, you know, they maybe thought like it was like American tale, like, oh, we're going to America, we're going to be, you know, rich. And then they get there and they find that they have to eat shit just like everyone else. But they could always promise, you know, more land. There's, you know, the expanded that. And then once we hit the, you know, the end of the contiguous United States, then it was, uh, you know, real and overseas imperialism time. I want to say real imperialism time. But, you know, then that's when Spanish-American War and then the U.S. starts to assert itself on the global stage to bring in, you know, profits from other countries. This is imperialism, like as, you know, as Lenin talks about it. But 
and that and they're and they're able to do that to kind of smooth things over basically up until the 70s when you know the bottom started to drop out on all of that and now you know and also like former colonies became sovereign nations and started to you know are starting to assert themselves and basically my point is that there is nowhere else to go for the u.s the u.s has nowhere else to expand there's no new places it can extract profits from and so in the like in what is a pretty severe crisis honestly i mean the worst depression since the great depression and in the 30s like it was pretty it was not at all a controversial opinion that like capitalism was like going to be done in 20 years like people like that was that was like a thing you could argue like pretty pretty good justification and now it's much more entrenched but the problems are still there and so you know that like the white sovereignty that was able to smooth things over with the promise of more land and you know more consumption that is actually reaching a stalling a a, st- a stagnation point and so they yeah they don't really have anywhere else to go and so you know either you know something something's going to have to get redistributed or there's more people are just going to have to, you know, the American exceptionalism is going to have to go and, you know, everyone's going to have to realize that like, yeah, there's no freedom here. Right. So, yeah. Um, to end on an uplifting note. Yeah. That's actually a good way to end. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we talked about a lot and we were going to talk about, the attention economy we can talk about that maybe in like a uh yeah that that was kind of a uh like a a half-formed thought that i still need to develop the way blackness functions sort of in the influencer attention economy but you know stay tuned because we'll come back to that and also you know go more in depth on uh biden's new imperialism look whenever he gets around to doing it if he can remember what even countries he's supposed to be bombing because i think he probably forgets and maybe that was it maybe it was just like he meant to hit iraq and he just forgot and hit syria yeah or something. Uh, i also want to say uh i want to give a special mention um uh lawrence ferlinghetti uh passed away on february oh, wow. yeah february 23rd he died at age um he was 101 and uh i, mean, I did talking... not know he was still alive yeah he yeah he was born march 21st 1919 he died uh february 23rd 2021 um yeah for those of you who don't know he was a beat poet and he was he's the founder of um city lights books in san francisco which is uh still up and running thankfully um you know independent bookstore publisher and they have a lot of really good um especially if you're looking for like good um of left-wing books and literature city lights books is uh you know they publish those and they're still up and running so um and when i was in graduate school at university of san francisco we we uh um went went on a sort of class trip to uh city lights so um yeah so i want to just kind of give a you know special rest in peace to uh ferlin getty and just like a definitely a shout out to city lights books because um uh yeah i think just those kinds of like independent um 
book publishers and those kinds of institutions are really important to support. Um, and along with like also special shout out to Marcus Books in Oakland as well, uh, black owned, uh, yeah, the oldest black owned bookstore in the country in Oakland, California. So yeah, rest yeah there's peace. a well, I maybe in the country. When I when I was in Philadelphia, they said that was the oldest black. I went to one. They said that was the oldest black owned bookstore on the East Coast. So oh maybe yeah oh, that sounds that sounds about right yeah um so yeah definitely yeah rest in peace to Lawrence For- Ferlinghetti um just you know let he left behind I think a really um important and good legacy especially in the world of like media and publishing so yeah he passed away a couple of days ago and I thought it would be good just to uh just to you know pay homage so anyway yeah that's uh we'll end on that um so anyway our normal sign out keep the faith and stay dangerous peace y'all take care see ya